Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. Consumers and the healthcare industry haven't always gotten along. There are battles about pricing, the availability of drugs, and huge profits, arguably at the expense of human health. But coronavirus has put the tension on hold. Perhaps more than ever before, doctors, public health officials, patients, and big pharma are working toward the same goal, stopping the spread of COVID-19. I'm Alex Yule. This week on The Readback, we're talking to Josh Nathan Kazis, who covers healthcare for Barron's. Hey, Josh. Hey, how you doing? So I'm fascinated by everything you write these days. I wanted to start by talking about this week's market action so far and the trading in the stock market, because Monday had a really different feel to me in terms of how investors were thinking about coronavirus. We got this big rally, and I think it was largely about the hope of new treatments and vaccines for coronavirus. What was your thought covering that and what impact it had on the stock market this week? You know, the news is is so grim every day, and it felt Monday morning like there was one sort of rare bit of good news, which is that Johnson & Johnson, which is you know, the biggest pharmaceutical company in the world, they've been working on a, on a coronavirus vaccine since January, before even the large vaccine makers got into this business. And they announced on Monday that they're going to begin testing their experimental vaccine in September in people. They're going to begin manufacturing it now. And if all goes well, they think they could have a vaccine ready for emergency use as early as early next year. You know, I think the timeline we've all been working with for a vaccine is 12 to 18 months. And this shortened that timeline a little bit. You know, I don't don't think anyone quite knows how widely available an emergency use vaccine would be. We obviously don't know if this is going to work. It hasn't been tested in people yet. But it felt like this was a good sign and, and something that could give us confidence that this could all end maybe a little bit sooner than we thought. Right. I have to say, I mean, every story I read, whether it's our stories or anywhere else, it's like we're at this point now where I want to find hope in between the lines or just straight out. And certainly the J&J story, I mean, it was the best read story on the site uh, on Monday by far. And I think that's largely a reflection of of, of the, the hope that people are searching for. The stock jumped, I think it was 8% on this news. Um I wonder, do you think in terms of like the confidence that people saw, I mean, we don't know if this vaccine is going to work. But one thing that seems surprising is that they they said they were going to begin manufacturing immediately. That seems like a real confidence measure. It's an important strategic measure. And I think a lot of the companies that are working on drugs and vaccines are doing things like this. I mean, the point is you don't want to, you know, get the FDA to say on a Monday, okay, this, this works, you can start using it in people. And then you're like, wait a second, I don't have any of this on hand. I need to make it. Yeah. And no one's going to be able to get it for 12 months. So so a lot of companies, and it's not just J&J, are beginning manufacturing at some scale well before even trials have begun. Okay. Um, so that's actually not so unusual. And, and, and there's actually some money from the federal government for this. It's it's part of the response, and it's an important part of the response because manufacturing is a, is a huge part of how you get pharmaceuticals to people. Right. And, you know, when it's about speed, you got you got to start 
doing things at risk if you want it to be available um, as soon as it can be. So basically, we'll have this point at which these clinical trials are going on simultaneously with the production of the drug you're testing. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Exactly. And, you know, you also need material for the trials. These trials aren't small. So that's part of it. That's a good point. Okay. And then the other really fascinating thing about J&J's announcement is they said that at least for now, this would be done on a not-for-profit basis. Now, pharma and big pharma is a very profitable business. What does that tell us? I mean, not-for-profit, that sounds unusual. Yeah, well, look, let's take a step back. You know, it, it is a matter of, of, I think, common understanding that, you know, drugs and vaccines for emerging viral threats for new viruses that, that pop up, there's no great business model there. Interesting. Um, generally, and, you know, let's just put coronavirus aside for a minute, these things turn up, companies may start to work on them, the disease might disappear or go away or get, you know, seasonally smothered in some way before there's a drug or vaccine ready and you'll have put a lot of money into this and then there won't be a market anymore. The, the idea generally, what companies usually want to do is create a drug or vaccine that a government will want to stockpile. Right. But the point is, like, there's not a lot of companies out there working on this. And we wrote about this in January when we pointed out that of the largest makers of vaccines in the world, there's like four companies that are the dominant players in that market. None of them were working on coronavirus vaccines in late January. A few companies were. J&J, which is not a big, doesn't have a huge vaccine business. And then some biotechs were. I don't think that anybody, at least up until quite recently, thought that any of these coronavirus treatments or vaccines would be hugely profitable. Obviously, they can be, it, it could be major for a small biotech company, but I don't think the larger firms had, had really been approaching this with commercial models in mind. But Johnson & Johnson has outright said they're not going to be seeking a profit, at least in the context of the, of the current emergency on their right. coronavirus uh, vaccine. And, and what makes that so fascinating, as we talked about, is they said it could it would be not-for-profit, and yet the stock soared anyway. Well, there's two things to say there. One, I mean, you know, maybe people didn't read the whole release. <laughs> That's always possible. <laughs> but, but second of all, uh, you know, there, there are reputational things to consider here, right? Many of the headlines about Johnson & Johnson over the last 12 months have been about product liability lawsuits and opioid lawsuits, which the company has struggled with, you know. Right. So really bad news for J&J over the last year. Yeah. And, you know, pharma in general doesn't have a great reputation. And I think that a lot of these companies are thinking about this as a way to sort of, um, you know, win their way back into the public's good graces. Yeah, right. I mean, they, they have a really a role here that, uh, that, that could that could save us all. I mean, it's, it's remarkable. I guess in terms of the, just the vaccine point, um, it is really interesting because it's like one of these businesses that if you do your job really well, you effectively kill your market for your product. Well, it depends on the vaccine, right? I mean, some vaccines need everyone needs to get, some vaccines need boosters. Um, I mean, the trick with the vaccine market is, first of all, it's uh, vaccines you know, in the scale of pharmaceuticals are not that expensive. It's very high volume, but the margins are usually not so big. Okay. Um, there's exceptions, of course, but um, the, the sort of main point about vaccines is they're very expensive to, to create. You need to do huge tests usually over many, many years to prove that they're not harmful, right? Because you're giving them to healthy people. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you don't want to have a situation where you've given it to 100,000 people and you find out five years later that it does something horrible to, to those people. So the, the FDA requires, you know, very significant, very large testing. And that's expensive. You know, um, failures are very expensive in the vaccine yeah. world. 
So it, it's just an expensive and, and challenging thing to, to do. Okay. And that's what's sort of so remarkable about what's going on here. Yeah. Okay. Well, so you mentioned the word failure. I want to talk a little bit about the timeline for the vaccine. We're all working under this assumption that the worst case scenario for coronavirus is basically an 18-month timeline. And that's largely built around the hope for a vaccine. So I'm curious in terms of your thoughts and what Wall Street is thinking, is that the worst case scenario? I mean, are we going to have a vaccine for this? I know lots of companies are working on it. Um, how realistic are our hopes that we will get a vaccine uh, for COVID-19? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And I, I think it's it's really hard to know. Look, a lot of different companies are trying a lot of different approaches, you know, different modalities, different types of vaccines. And then within the different modalities, there's there's lots of quote unquote shots on goal, you know? Right. How many vaccines are people working on right now? So the, the, there's a group called the Milken Institute that's counting. And I'm just looking at their their counter right now. So they, they have about 47. Not all of those are programs by, you know, big companies whose names you'd recognize, okay. but certainly north of 40 vaccines are, are being developed right now. And we only need one of those to work theoretically, right? Uh, yes, you, you need one really good one. Okay. But I think, you know, if you look at the stats on drug development, like most drugs fail and there's no reason to think that all of these vaccines are going to work or even most of these vaccines are going to work. And we just need to hope that we get one quickly that works relatively well and that doesn't make you sick in some other way. Right. Okay. I want to just switch gears a little bit um, because so we're all talking and we're all thinking about the the vaccine and the, the possibility of just ending this thing outright. It seems to me, though, there is the wild card along the way, and um, and maybe we're all going to be surprised when it comes, of a treatment that, if not a cure for coronavirus, it somehow lowers the, the mortality rate, or it really takes the edge off of this terrible illness. Where are we with that right now? And is it possible that, say, a month from now, we could hear about a treatment that truly works based on a clinical study? Um, that, su that suddenly like changes all of our views and fears around this disease? From, from my reading and talking to folks, I think the thinking is that there will not likely not be a sort of silver bullet drug that we discover that, that really cures this outright. I think the best hope is that there will be lots of drugs that work well in different situations and um, we'll you know, discover those over the course of the next year or however long it takes. Okay, right. Look, let, let, let's talk about remdesivir uh, just to start. This is the Gilead drug that's gotten a tremendous amount of attention here. It's, it, it was designed to treat Ebola, um, and it has shown some very early promising results in coronavirus. There's a number of tests ongoing, and there should be a readout in April where, where we get um, a good sense of, of some larger studies. You know, the problem with remdesivir is that it's an, in, it's an intravenous, uh, you know, it's not a pill, it's really only going to be used in the hospital in serious cases. Um, and, and I think there's sort of a trade-off like that with a lot out there. You know, hydroxychloroquine, very exciting. That's the malaria drug. Yes, this is generic drug. The malaria drug could be quite widely available, but the data so far is very, very thin. The FDA did give an emergency use authorization of this the other day, um, so people can, under narrow circumstances, be given it in the hospital yeah. now. It, it's so interesting how, to me, or so both kind of interesting, sobering, the news cycle for coronavirus in our current environment that moves literally minute by minute, hour by hour, is so out of step with the cycle for drug development. And I, I think we're all really struggling with that, right? <laughs> it's true. I mean, look, 
Well, you, you can feed the news cycle, right? Because there's so many companies working on things. There's like incremental developments in this stuff every single day. That said, you know, these trials aren't, coronavirus is not like a chronic illness that takes somebody years and years to suffer from and, and, and work right. through, right? Like uh, the trials are not hugely long duration. They're like a month or two um, or less. So I do think we will start to see data from, from more of these over the next couple yeah. of months. But that said, that's really for the drugs that existed already that are being um, repurposed. There's a whole other set of, um, for example, these antibody drugs where a number of companies are trying to identify uh, antibodies, which are like proteins that your body makes to you know attack a particular yeah. virus. Um, they're trying to identify antibodies that work against the virus that causes coronavirus. Those will take a little bit longer. There is a lot of um, enthusiasm around those. Regeneron has a program that has been somewhat successful in the past, creating other treatments. They, they say they're going to start testing something in the next few months. Those are longer term, but I think there's also some excitement around those. The third front in all this is, is, is the testing, obviously, which has gotten a ton of attention in the last few months because, frankly, the United States has been so far behind. Where are we right now? in testing and how much movement are we seeing there? Look, I think the good news here is that there are more and more tests approved, including a number of tests that can give results very quickly. Um, Abbott Laboratories got approved on Friday for a test that can give you an answer in 15 minutes. And this runs on these little devices that, um, that lots of doctor's offices and urgent cares and hospitals have that are often used to run flu tests. Um, it's kind of the same thing. Abbott's going to says that they'll be able to distribute 50,000 of those a day. So it's not going to go to like your doctor's office quite yet. It'll probably go to hospitals and urgent cares and those sorts of places. Um, but, but, you know, that's promising. And it's actually the second rapid point of care diagnostic approved in the past few days. There was another one from a Danaher subsidiary. It's like a little bit slower, but, you know, same idea. Um, and then you also have a, a number of these uh, very... Um, rapid tests. I'm not. So, I'm sorry. The, these sort of high volume tests. A number of companies have been approved that w- with uh, coronavirus tests that can run on these machines that can do hundreds or even a thousand tests a day. Um, so altogether, the testing capacity should be increasing very soon. I think you know there are limiting factors. There's been a lot of coverage of shortages in certain reagents or tools you need to run the tests. Um, you know, I I. I think we've we we have thought that this problem was going to be eliminated. Uh, like every week, it's been like, okay, this is the last week when people are going to have trouble right. having tests, getting tested. It seems to me like this should be the last week, um, but uh, there have been so many issues with this, so it, so it's a little hard to say. But the news here is encouraging. I think that the these fast these faster tests are, are good news and um, laying the groundwork for a world where we can you know all know quite quickly if we have it or if we don't. Yeah, and I, I I would think that if we get to that point of these rapid tests really being out there, it can change behaviors, it can change responses from a public health perspective. I mean, if all of a sudden we can tell you within 10 minutes, you're clear, or you need to be isolated for two weeks, that it could bring back a certain level of confidence. Yeah, you know, you could think about the effect it has, say, on, you know, medical professionals who are exposed. I mean, for a long time, the standard has been that they then have to stay home for two weeks, and that's really detrimental to the hospitals that are trying to mount rapid responses here. You know, if you can know within 15 minutes if they have it, um, you know, it really changes how how the medical response happens. Okay. In the early days of this crisis, I'm talking about like 
February, even early March, uh, when we were still seeing each other in the office every day. I often would pass by your desk in the morning and I check in with you and I'd say, Josh, how worried are we today? You know, you were my barometer on this illness because you were covering <laughs> it essentially every day. And and I got to say, pretty early on, you were nervous. And I think I think rightfully so. So I, I just want I'm, I'm curious. Here we are probably a month later. We've all been working from home. We're hopefully safe. And we sort of have kept our distance from everyone. But how hopeful are you right now? How worried are you today? I'm very worried. Obviously, the Johnson & Johnson story yesterday was was somewhat hopeful, but that's long-term hope. I mean, I think in the immediate near term, things are bad and getting worse, you know, um, uh, and I uh, I don't feel hopeful at all. <laughs> okay. Um, Sorry. <laughs> no, I mean, that's... Uh, I, 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 I like, look, I, I, I think it's, I don't think it's like going to be like this forever, um, but I also think that the next... 12 months or more are going to be very, very hard. Like, it's not as though, you know, Johnson & Johnson will get a emergency use authorization for a vaccine uh, one day and then the next day this will be all right, gone. Right. You know, it's, it's still, you need billions of people to get this vaccine before we really can stop worrying about it. I think, you know, looking through all of the, the efforts to design a vaccine and a drug... You know, it's heartening that so many people are working so hard on this, and I hope they're successful, and I hope they're successful quickly. Um, and certainly they have a, a chance to, you know, save the world, and, and I hope it happens. For sure. And um, like we talked about, it does feel like at least we're, for the mo- you know, all in alignment on this. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm confident, I feel confident, as worried as I am also, that, like, business and, and public health and individuals finally seem to be working with the same purpose. Personally, I'm hopeful that, that, that that's going to sort of start to flatten the curve in the coming weeks, despite all of the terrible headlines we're going to keep seeing. We're certainly going to have you back on to talk about this, Josh. I hope that, you know, a month or two from now, maybe we'll have some additional good news or silver linings to talk about. Uh, in the meantime, please stay healthy, stay safe. Thanks so much for, for joining us and giving us all your insights. Yep, stay well. Thanks. To read Josh's exhaustive coverage of coronavirus and everything about the implications of COVID-19 for investors, individuals, and healthcare, check out Barron's.com. I'm Alex Yule. The Readback is produced by Meta Lutzhoft. We'll be back next week.